Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Jonathan Legg. And before we get to Jonathan, here's a few announcements. Our website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. Go there. You'll find photos of our guests. You'll find stories that I've written. You'll find stories that some of the guests have written. You'll find links to their social media. You'll find links to our social media. And that is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter, we have a Facebook page. There are links to Stitcher Radio. There's links to Apple Podcasts. We are on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify. We're pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. So please, I ask you, as always, if you listen to us on any of those platforms, please give us a good rating. Give us a thumbs up. Tell us you like us. That helps more people find the show by boosting our presence, and that's a cool thing for you to do, and it costs you nothing, so I'd appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show or know somebody who might be right for the show as a guest, write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com, and there you can also write me just to ask me travel advice. You can say nice things. If you say crappy things, uh, you don't have to write me. But any of that other stuff, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. Jonathan Legg was a guy I've been trying to get on the show for a while. We have a lot of similarities, both actually from Illinois. Both have done some acting and both have done some uh, TV hosting. He hosts a travel show called The Road Less Traveled, which plays in various uh, outlets and cable companies around, uh, not just here, but around the world, that he's done some pretty cool things in some really remote locations. After college, he lived in Colombia for a while, and then he lived in Italy for a while, and then he got a job as a flight attendant, did that for a few years, lived in Japan as an actor and model, worked in Shanghai and China, came to LA, did some acting, and then fell into this travel hosting thing and has just had a pretty varied career great stories great travel tales and that's the reason this episode is long because he's got <laughs> great stories and i considered breaking it up into two parts but you know what's the point of that why keep you waiting you can stop and start this at any time you want so what the hell you want to break it up into two episodes that's on you man or listen to it the whole way through. Either way, I don't think you'll be bored because I certainly wasn't. Jonathan is an interesting guy who's led an interesting life. So let's get it started. Please enjoy my conversation with Jonathan Legg. Jonathan Legg. Hello, Mike. Of the, of the whatever legs. Where are you from? Uh, kind of a European mutt mix. <laughs> I, I looked up in, uh, in college once the, the entomology of leg, and it was either one with uh, unusual legs or the one who runs through the meadows. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go with the latter. Okay. It sounds more poetic. Makes sense that it's leg related. Yeah, right. So where did you grow up? I was born in Peoria, Illinois. Hey, my home state. Yeah. And Peoria, then, all right. And then we moved promptly uh, to Hong Kong for three years and then the Philippines for four years. And then uh, we came back to Peoria when I was seven because my, my father worked for Caterpillar. Okay, yeah, Peoria. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think this, <laughs> this experience molded me quite a lot because I, I had this 
sort of coming to consciousness in a very cosmopolitan expat community in Manila. And then uh, I'm transported back to the, the suburbs, which um, is really like a simulacrum of culture. You know, you go to Chi Chi's Mexican restaurant where yeah. they have chimichangas on the menu and came back into third grade and, and uh, had real trouble adjusting, you know, kind of uh, was bullied in school, kind of shrank into myself and uh, felt super undesirable really all the way until I was a senior in high school when I got dragged into a school musical. And then, you know, you, you get the lines in your head, you step on stage, you're basically staring at lights and the, the music hits its cue and boom, you, you do it. And all the parents come up later and tell you how great you were probably <laughs> lying through their teeth, but, but my confidence boosted. So I, I, from this experience, I've always had a love for since then for performance and also being in this cosmopolitan international community and then getting transferred back to the suburbs gave me that classic, you know, sort of Christian Slater Heathers suburban <laughs> angst. And I always wanted to break out. And, and uh, as soon as I could, I started traveling and, and get out of Illinois. So after Asia, it was back to Peoria? Yeah, that's right. Okay. Did you end up finishing high school there? I did, yeah. Okay. Which uh, Richwoods? Yes. See? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, well, I used to, you know, I went, I was just up the road. I was in uh, uh, Crete Moni High School, which I don't know if you know where that is. It was South Suburbs. No shit. But I used to cover, you know, I was a newspaper writer out of college. I went to Northern Illinois. Oh, yeah. So, I went uh, to Southern Illinois. Oh, there you go. Right, how about that? Uh, <clears throat> so this is, how, this is how adventurous I was at the time because I applied to Southern, which, <laughs> surprise, I got in. Uh, I can't tell you. you know, I tell people, it's like, yeah, it wasn't that hard to get. If you had a pencil, I think you got in. Yeah. So, but, you know, I was interested in like radio, TV or communications. I knew their communications department was better in Southern than it was at Northern. But this is how naive I was. I was like, well, that's so far, you know, Southern. <laughs> but to me now, I mean, as a traveler, you're like, oh, well, God, you yeah. wuss. You, you couldn't. But yeah, I just didn't want to drive all that. I mean, way. it is a different world. They consider themselves a uh, a little Dixie. Southern oh, Illinois. Southern Illinois. I tell people it's the South, man. It's it, the it South. Is, they got accents down there. Totally. It is, the weather was different. Yeah. Uh, there was hills. Right. And it was prettier for, <laughs> for sure. sure. But uh, yeah, as I was freezing my balls off in uh, at DeKalb <laughs> in the middle of the winter, I'd call my one of my best friends from high school who went to Southern, and it was like a twenty degree difference yeah you know, it was crazy but uh yeah it was uh it's interesting how you come back do you think that little even that little taste up to third grade in asia was enough to go i didn't know there was a bigger world out there right but you had already seen it it's yeah. got to be that like you think that changed your mindset immediately absolutely you have a glimpse of what's possible you know, this, uh, this book I just wrote, the, the seven ahas every traveler should have, kind of this, the central premise is that you, you don't really know who you are or what your culture is about unless you, unless you travel. Just like on a map, you need to have a couple of points to triangulate your location. In the same way, unless you get out of your bubble and all the familiar anchors and all the, the, the continual story of who you are in that culture you really can't get a clear idea of, of what your best self could be and what the best community you could have would be. Okay. I mean, did you think to yourself at college, 
were you still performing? Did you do theater there? Did you like radio, yeah. TV, or? Yeah, that's a good question. I studied communications. Yeah, yeah, right. and uh, and uh, I remember my college counselor only. One time I visited, you know, it was kind of senior year. I was like, what the fuck am I going to (laughs) do? I was good at being a student at that point, but had no idea about real world life. And uh, she asked me that classic question, like, if you could do anything, what what would you like to do? And I just read the story of Brad Pitt uh, leaving, I think, in his last semester of senior year. Yeah, he was at Missouri, I think. Missouri, yeah. Yeah. He drove out to Hollywood with uh, 600 bucks in his pocket and an old Datsun. And so I told her I was inspired with that. And I was thinking about following in his footsteps. And she lowered her head and shook it. <laughs> and then looked up to me with a big pregnant pause and said, you know, that's, that's very unrealistic. Most people don't make it. What else do you want to do? Yeah. And uh, I said, well, geez, I, I want to travel. And so she steered me into getting a, a master's in ESL, which, you know, now the state of ESL, it's like a, you, you could practically dress a chimpanzee up in a suit and give, <laughs> get him an English teaching job. But, and I have a master's in it, but it did. It a did, master's in, in teaching English. In teaching English. English is a second language. Yeah. So. Yeah. So that, that led me to um, my, first, uh, my first real job which was uh teaching english in bogota colombia and uh bogota was a real eye-opening experience i mean this was 96 so it was pablo escobar just been killed it was rough yeah i can imagine but i got street smart very fast (laughs) (laughs) it's funny i've only been to medellin or medellin as they call it down there but yeah they're still living uh, you know part of them are almost embracing that legacy now because it's so notorious, almost the way kind of Chicagoans kind of like accept Al Capone. Right. In the same, it's like, well, this was not a good guy, <laughs> you know, but hey, if you're famous for something, they're, they're going to sell it, you know, whatever it is. But uh, I loved Medellin. I haven't been to Bogota, which I heard is, I know it's bigger, but maybe bigger not as colder. pretty. It's colder. It's much higher altitude. So the nights are, are oh, chilly. Wow, okay. You need a coat every night for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to Cartagena. Oh, that should be so nice. For the first time. Yeah. Which I guess is completely, because it's right on the Caribbean, it's like super hot and humid, I heard. For sure. Yeah, okay. So, yeah. Bogota. Yeah. So, you're there. Give me your biggest culture shock moment when you got to Bogota. Anything, like your scariest incident, maybe. Oh, I got a good story. Well, I was kind of, in the first place, I was sort of a an very naive Midwestern kid going there. I, I had been in the middle of grad school. I went to Costa Rica briefly to learn Spanish. It was prerequisite to graduate. And so when I got scouted from, by these guys at uh, Sacy University in Bogota, and they were offering me the job, I, I put no effort into looking up the state of Bogota or was reading any news articles. I just assumed it must be something like Costa Rica. Sure, yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> and, uh, How's the surfing in Bogota? Yeah, <laughs> nothing like it. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was one of those situations. I stayed with a host family at first, and they were like, do not. As soon as it gets dark outside, you need to be inside the house, right? We're going to triple lock the door. Uh, so there, were a lot, there was a lot of fear on the streets. And slowly I pushed, pushed the limits, you know, and got more and more comfortable. But uh, I think I need two hands to count the amount of times people tried to rob me. <laughs> and the, the most exciting incident, I, 
I was I found the the Bulls were in the national championship, and I found one bar that had it. So you had to come down the main street, which was called the Septima, and then go down a side street to find the bar. A teacher came with me, another teacher. We watched the first half. I walked her back to the main street to to get a taxi, and then I went back to catch the second half. And on that small side street linking the, the bar to the main street, there was one empty lot. It was like building, building, empty lot. And in that empty lot, there were seven guys with their shirts off drinking aguardiente, which is like a hard, cheap liquor. And every time we passed them, they kind of leer at us. Uh, I finished the game, and as I was coming out, they were, they were ready. So I've, I've got my head down. I remember eating a candy bar. I, don't remember, I remember this detail. It was a Chilean candy bar called a Golpe. I got my head down. I'm eating this, this candy bar, and I'm out of my peripheral vision ahead. I see two guys break off from that group, and they travel down and get behind me. So now they're walking behind me. And then one guy breaks off, and he goes, and he sits down on this little barrier in front of me next to the sidewalk. And then the other dudes are waiting in the lot so it's kind of like they formed a triangle now oh, and uh i just thought to myself okay don't don't let them know that you're on to them so i just just stay chill till you figure something out so i continued walking and i'm keeping a loose eye on that main street which is like two blocks away in the distance and i get kind of in the center of the triangle and then boom i just break into a full sprint <laughs> right in kind of the gap between the two guys in front and it takes them a set. They didn't realize I was onto them. So they're like, ip, 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 get them, you know, and now they're running, but I've now I've got to jump on them and they've been drinking all day in the hot sun. I'm running for my life. So they, <laughs> and they, you're a young man. You got the energy. Yeah. Speed. Yeah. I was 27 or something like that. So, uh, they, the closest they were at the start was probably, uh, closest guy was probably, 15 meters to me but by the time i got to the main street i had 50 meters on him <laughs> and and luckily it was just serendipity this massive traffic clogged street had a gap in it that i was able to without even breaking stride i sped right across the gap and then when they got up to it it closed i flagged down a taxi flipped them off from across the street got in the taxi and i was and i was out <laughs> But seven seven men in hot pursuit. What they wanted, I don't know. But it, it wouldn't have been good. The perfect, like the movie ending of that that chase. But it was like the cab driver then robs you. Yeah, <laughs> he pulls over. <laughs> he's with the guys. Up. Yeah, he's with them. Just They're does all a U-turn. <laughs> they do this every week. Chase a guy through the same traffic. Flush him right into the taxi. Yeah. And the Bulls won. So then there you go. And the Bulls won. Hey. Yeah. So how long did Bogota last? Uh, I was just there for one one school year. Okay, so like nine months. And then a buddy of mine offered me a job. At, he's like, what, the, what are you doing in Colombia? I'm, I'm here in Italy teaching at the summer camp. You know, we have full Italian lunch and dinner with the multiple courses. Oh, my so God. So he, he hooked me up with a job there. So I went from, from that uh, to um, this small town called uh, San Martino al Cimino near Lago di Vico, north of Rome. Okay. Yeah. So I was just in Rome. So this, how far north of Rome? Was this in Tuscany? Near Viterbo, if you know where that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Is that Tuscany? No. No, I don't think it's Tuscany. I think it's still in the Rome greater district. All right. I don't know what they're drilling next door, but that for people who are listening, yeah, deal yeah. with it. Because, yeah. yeah, I don't know what's happening. So you get to go to Rome or Italy, which has got to be like an amazing 
release oh, yeah. after Bogota. And Spanish and Italian, very similar. Did right. you get by okay? Did you pick up Italian pretty quickly? I picked up a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, and also there, there's, a little, uh, there's a little part in the book where I talk about how you, you know, as you travel, you learn how certain systems, people just do things better in other places. You know, you'll, when you go abroad and you really pay attention, it'll make you realize, hey, in our own culture, we actually do these things really well. But in these other cultures, they do other things better. And then you can slowly construct a life for yourself based on, on these things. And, and Italy was the first illumination, I would say, in that zone. I noticed how they would eat, how it was, uh, it was waves of, of food, not just, you know, here it's, I got my food, you got your food, yeah. he has his food. And you might offer a taste of your food, <laughs> yeah. right? <laughs> and there's like family style, everybody gets some. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so you've got this, the conversation sort of uh, flows along, you know, you're on a topic and then suddenly the, the segundi arrives. And, and <laughs> if the topic was getting stale, that arrival of the new food kind of just breaks, breaks the conversation, allows you to move on to something else. If it was good, it just picks right back up. <laughs> and so you're on this this culinary journey that's synchronized a bit to the uh, to the conversation. Well, food is a social thing there. You know, it's not like this idea of a fast food and just jamming food down your throat and leaving or to like getting things to go and just like, really, you can't even bother to sit down and eat or have a cup of coffee. You got to walk around with it and like take it to. It's just it's very uncivilized to them. I think they look at us like, Ugh, yeah, you're treating food as just food's more than just something to like fuel you and just get on to go. You Absolutely. Know? So you mentioned the book a couple of times. So uh, say the title again and what were your inspiration from it? I don't want you to give away the whole book, but, you know, give us a little hints of of your basis for writing it. And is this your first book? Uh, it, it is my first book. OK. Yeah. It's called The Seven Ahas Every Traveler Should Have. And it's sort of a, a, a look at travel through a philosophical lens. And the idea is if you're, if you're just going, if you're just traveling to accrue passport stamps or uh, you're hermetically sealing yourself inside a cruise ship or resort, you're not traveling in the purest sense. And to make a comparison, let's, let's compare it to meditation, right? If, if the first time I tried meditation, I just sat in a chair and thought about things for 10 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, I could have given up then and said, like, yeah, I tried meditation. It was all right. But I wasn't really meditating, right? And, and in the same way, I think unless you're – well, here's my definition of travel. It's, it's the simplest definition is going to, into an area that's unfamiliar to you and having novel experiences with people who appear dissimilar to you, right? And – you know, you're, you're getting yourself out of the familiar, basically, into novel situations with novel people. And then quickly what you discover is all, all the similarities and all the ways you, you connect with these people and, and the ways these experiences connect with something inside of you. Like, ah, this is, there's something true here, beautiful here. Was the basis of it to try to get people to travel a different way than they have been? Like, again, to get out of those cruise ships and uh, trying to accrue so many stamps on the passport. Because as I've gotten older, I travel slower. You know what I that's mean? That's it. That kind of thing. Absolutely. In fact, that's a, that's a chapter in the book is it's, it's better to go deeper than farther. 
I used to be a farther traveler, right? Like I quote unquote do the Baltics in yeah. 10 days. <laughs> you touch Helsinki, you touch, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, all these you know, Stockholm. Right. As if now I've got these like, you know, this, this Inside. bon fides, this like credibility, but you know, you scratch the surface of it and it, and it, you know, it fades away, right? What, what can I really tell you about Estonian culture after spending three days there? Or do I have any great travel story? Not, not really. Um, yeah, so the idea is to, to look at travel as a way of, of like changing your mind and becoming a better self and to, to, to be open to a philosophical lens as you travel. So you were in Italy for how long? I was there for three months at that time. Uh, I came back a couple other times just to travel for fun and one, came back another time and filmed two episodes of this uh, travel show called Road Less Traveled. Okay. Well, talk about getting into TV and when did that start for you and when did you start making your own as opposed to like auditioning for other people's shows? Yeah. So... So coming from being an English teacher, that led me to uh, one day at a, at a school, uh, I was teaching in San Francisco, getting severely underpaid. And uh, Everybody's underpaid in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then a little pop-up came on my uh, computer screen and said, uh, hey, do you want to you know, travel the world and blah, blah, blah. And it was, uh, it was a, United Airlines was hiring flight attendants. So I became a flight attendant for a while, which was a easier way to travel see this i did not know about you. a flight attendant a flight attendant yeah how much training goes into that there was a six-week course at a closed campus in elk grove uh just outside of chicago yep. yeah okay six weeks yeah barbie boot camp we colloquially <laughs> called it <laughs> i always wondered that as someone who likes to travel and has uh, someone who loves free travel you look at that but i mean i don't think i could deal with in my 20s, and I was a waiter, I was a bartender, I dealt with the public, and now I don't have the tolerance for it oh, at all. Oh, yeah, right. And now it's a complete, I think post 9-11, I know some flight attendants, and post 9-11, it re- the job just completely changed. That's absolutely true. That's, in fact, that's when I essentially quit. Uh, mm-hmm. After 9-11, they offered furloughs. Uh, they didn't know how long the business would take to recover, so I took a long two-year furlough, uh, which was a great deal. I got to health benefits, accrue my seniority. And I went to Japan because I'd, I'd met a Japanese model on the plane. And I thought, well, hey, that could be an interesting way to travel around Asia. So <laughs> I just flew to Japan on a whim and, and started getting modeling work, which led to acting work, uh, first in commercials and then some Japanese TV shows. Oh, really? Yeah. That's great. So you lived in Tokyo? I lived in Tokyo. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. So, so you were, were you working when 9-11 happened? Yeah, I was actually, I left New York that morning. I left oh my God. on one of the flights that, I think there were not 9 a.m. flights that, that got seized. Either that or an 8 a.m. I left an hour earlier. I left on hour earlier from those flights. And we were, um, we were over Iowa and the, the captain did like an all call, you know, on the phones there. And we answered it, and he said, look, there's something happening. I can't tell you what it is, but I'm going to make an emergency announcement and say there's a mechanical trouble, and we're going to land. And uh, I was the only, uh, I was only male flight attendant, and uh, 
the, the biggest, biggest flight attendant. So he's like, I want you to stand in front of the cockpit door, find a weapon, and no matter what you have to do, nobody gets in this cockpit. Do you understand? And uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, I get chills. All right, who wants coffee? <laughs> right. Oh, my God. So we, we uh, you know, he made the announcement. We landed. And I remember on, on the jump seat as we're taxiing to the airport, I opened up my phone and turned it on. And there's you know, 20 messages from friends saying, I hope you're still alive. My dad is message where he's babbling about glass falling and people jumping out of skyscrapers. And it was like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. It was a moment I'll never forget for sure. Oh my God! So were you like stranded in Iowa somewhere? Or were you- I was. They, yeah, they basically put us in vans, sent us a hotel, and they said, "Just we'll just stay there till we figure this thing out." And uh, eventually, they opened up the flying the some flight routes, but not many people wanted to work them. So I, I took a series. I worked a series of flights to basically make my way back to my my base in uh, San Francisco at the time. Okay. So, oh my God, that's that's nuts. So. In your time as a flight attendant, which was what, a few years? Yeah, uh, three years, I think. Three years, okay. Uh, In that, what kind of perspective did you get being on the other side of it, now being a passenger and having done it, uh, that you can pass on to people if you could give them any advice other than to be nicer? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what did you learn and what can passengers do better and what can airlines do better? Oh, wow, those are some good questions. <laughs> Well, the first tip, just to give you a tip off the bat, like if every now and then a passenger would come in with a, like a nice box of candy or some kind of treat to pet, and they hand it to the chief flight attendant there in the door and say, hey, give this to the crew. And that person always got hooked up with free drinks or whatever, you know, it's just, it's just a little spot of brightness in your day to suddenly have a high quality chocolate treat. This is how Johnny Jett, the blogger, got around the world uh, in the 90s, I think, and when he was starting out. Oh, did he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, was no t- uh, that's, he told me that. It's like he would, get, he would bring gifts for the crew. Yeah, great idea. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the airlines sure, certainly could do a lot better because we, you know, at least in my mind, I was just knocking it out. I was just knocking the service out as fast as possible. We, we would race, sure. to, race down the aisle and... You know, it was usually I was working 67, so we had the two aisles, and I was always trying to beat the other cart down the aisle just as fast <laughs> as you could go, get sling the drinks out, you know, try to train the passengers to to when they say <laughs> when they say they want a coffee, you know, we sometimes I'd, I'd I don't know if I did this, but other flight tents would kind of pre prepare the prepare the cabin by saying, hey, we're gonna come down with a drink cart. If you just say coffee, you're gonna get it black. So just to save that follow-up question. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, if we were in a real rush, sometimes all the coffee would be decaf. Oh, right. Yeah, because there's no, no problem giving a, a you know, person that can take caffeine decaf coffee. The other way around would be a problem. So, right. Yeah. If you don't want to have to run to the back to get a decaf for somebody, then just, yeah. just make it all decaf. I never understand coffee on a plane, either for a long flight. What are you staying awake for? I want a sedative. <laughs> give me, That's a good point. Give me Valium. Give me you know, anything that'll not, a tranquilizer. I don't want to be like wide awake to do what? Yeah, w- watch stare, a bad stare, movie? With stare it. at the back of the seat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I want to sleep I, and I can't get to sleep on planes. What's, did you ever, other than 9-11, of course, did you ever have any kind of scary, what was the wildest incident that you ever had to deal with as a flight attendant? Uh, just one, there was one medical emergency once where some guy, 
like I see people running to the back with medical kits and they said some guy dropped a bottle of wine on his head and I was like, what, those little mini bottles of wine? But turned out this guy had one of those big jugs of wine, you know, like you can buy like, like a cheap, Chianti bottle or like something? a cheap, you know, craft kind of thing yeah. and he put it in the overhead bin and he halfway through the flight, he popped the bin over, opened to check on his wine and it zoop, fell right out and <laughs> cracked him on the skull. <laughs> and... uh there was one incident, too, where the landing gear didn't come down at first, and we thought we might have to evacuate the plane. Mm. And frankly, that was exciting, because if you're, if you're the flight attendant, when you're just a passenger, all you're thinking is, am I going to survive or die? When you're the flight attendant, you have all these steps that you're trained to do after the crash. Mm-hmm. So just giving yourself something to think ahead. And I guess you could do this as the passenger. You could already think, oh, how many rows do I have to go back? You know, am I going to, I'm going to be one of these helpers that stands at the bottom of the slide and pulls people off, sends them away. Right. Then, then at least you have something to think yeah. about. Oh God. And, um, saw one couple go into the, into the bathroom once. Oh uh, really? Yeah. For a while. For a while. <laughs> yeah. We had a bottle of champagne for them when they came out. But what's more common is you see people getting, getting handies underneath the sure the blankets. The blanket. Yeah. yeah. Back when they gave blankets? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever look at, like, because the job's changed so much and flying has changed so much. People are bringing on their emotional support chickens that they're flying with or you know, animals everywhere. I mean, and, and just the level. Do you ever see it and just go, there, thank God I'm not doing that anymore? For sure. I mean, <laughs> especially the layovers now, flight tents or, you know, they fly to a New York to LA and they get, 10 hour layover, but you got to consider part of that layover. The layover starts in the minute the plane. Yeah, you got to uh, still get to docks. the car waiting for the That's it. transportation. You so could, you, all you got is the time to go to sleep and then come right back. Whereas pre 9 11, I did a lot of transcons. I started based in New York, and the primary routes were either to LA or San Francisco. We'd have 25 hour layover on average, sometimes a little longer. So you had time to go out. Yeah, there was always a um, in the manual. You're supposed to have a, a a briefing before the flight and a debriefing after the flight, but nobody did the debriefing. Debriefing actually was code for drinking in somebody's <laughs> hotel room. Right. So it'd be like the debriefing is going to be whatever Johnny's room, room two hundred six at mm-hmm. the at the hotel. Uh, <laughs> some of that liquor may have been on the plane previously in the in the room. Right, I get there's it. A, there's a rumor. <laughs> Oh, man. I always say it was like, I got to say, you know, not you don't have to talk about this part. But, man, I would see like I always thought that being a straight male flight attendant was like being a straight male dancer on Broadway. It was like those odds are fantastic. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's not a bad way to spend your 20s, man. When I. So when I went to training camp, the six weeks, you're locked in this compound, and they, and they really discourage you from going off, and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, it's like summer camp. Yeah, and I'm one of the few straight guys. And then <laughs> of the other straight guys, some of them have serious girlfriends, or they're married. And I just happened, on the first day as I'm loading up my room, I befriend one of the other straight guys who's like across the hall loading stuff in his room. And at the time, I was dating a woman in San Francisco. It was, a, you know, it was, it was an okay relationship. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going off on breaks to find a payphone caller, and, and this, this, this guy, uh, John, 
is like, dude, what are you doing? You've got to break up with her now. This is an unprecedented moment in your life. <laughs> and we would walk into the lunch hall and I, I imagine it's what your average woman feels like when she walks into an Irish bar. Yeah, right. Just you, you feel like a piece of meat, which, you know, when you're 26, it's not okay. a terrible feeling. You don't mind being a piece of meat at yeah. 26? Yeah. No, that's great. Did uh, So Japan, I'm fascinated with. I mean, I've talked to enough people that have lived there as expats. And they say, as great as it's safe and cool as it is, you're never fully accepted by the locals. It, like, you never forget you're an outsider. That's Did absolutely you? true. Okay. Right. So for a couple of years, you're always seen as the barbarian, which is, <laughs> for a couple of years, it's fun to play the barbarian because Japan, you know, everything's held in line through social pressure, primarily. Not, you know, cops with guns. They have police, but yeah. it's not that kind of a culture, right? As we have here. Honor. And dignity yeah, and, and, and embarrassment. Respect, embarrassment, embarrassment yeah. right? Everybody's apologizing all Saving the time. Saving face, I think. Sumi masen, sai, you know? Yeah. And, but I'm, I, as the barbarian, you're immune to that because they sort of expect you're going to run amok. Yeah. Right. You'll act uh, improperly. And, yeah. yeah. You're so, dirtier than they are. Exactly. You know? So it's fun to play that role. But the, the friends of mine who decided to get married and stay there, I see them mentally suffering because at a certain point, you don't want to play the barbarian anymore. You just want to blend in. And no matter how long you've been there, how good your Japanese is, you still might, after 20 years, you may go out with your wife and her friends, and then someone at the table will be like, oh, your husband knows how to use chopsticks. Wow, hey, everybody, look at that. Look at how good he <laughs> can use the chopsticks. Good for him. As if you're this monkey that right. learned a complicated <laughs> <Right>. trick. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. And then they don't mean anything bad by it, but it's just, yeah. you know, I think it's, it's been insulated culture for so long. They're, they're always kind of stunned that anybody could learn their language or figure out certain mm-hmm. things, you know. And there is a, t- and I love Japan, but there is that tad of xenophobia and racism. That, that kind of like, you'll see stuff in the stores that are like, oh, yeah, there's, oh man, <laughs> like and th- old like African dolls with uh, right. like, like oh boy. And if you get outside of the city and you go to smaller towns, certain bars will have signs saying no gaijin allowed, no mm-hmm. foreigners allowed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was your job there. And I always wonder about this because I saw like a, a 60 minute story about China that there's like this, uh, was it 60 minutes? Whatever it was. But there's like a market for actors and things there just to be the white guy. Like they, you know, and there's a, a lot of work. With, because they need one, and also not just like for TV and commercials and stuff like that. It's for like at a party, they will hire guys just to like stand around and you know how they bring influencers to a party or right. something. Like it looks like high class that you've got like white people at your party. Yeah, in actually, China. I, I did a gig like that once in Shanghai where I just oh, really? had to wear like wear a watch and walk around. It was, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> but China's kind of like the in Japan, you're getting officially screwed on the rates like your agent will never tell you what the client's paying Mm -hmm. they just tell you what they're paying you and nobody knew what the agency was taking but the the best guesses were somewhere between like 80 and 70 percent the agent was taking in china like it's it's like it's not so official how you're being screwed like it's (laughs) it's kind of the wild west so you have to demand payment in cash as soon as the job is over right and so you're, you're always walking out from the job with, with bills like stuffed in your jack pockets and, and hoping you're not going to get rolled on the way out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How much work did you do in China and Shanghai and stuff? 
I did a good amount, actually. I've uh, never been. Yeah. It was it was fun. You know, it, it was really was the Wild West. Like, you get as many agents as you can. There's so many, like, new budding companies. So some guy will create a clothing factory, and then he'll just kind of reach out to his network. You know, do you know anybody who might be able to model these clothes? And one of those could be one of your, quote-unquote, agents, you know, <laughs> who's going to hook you up with that job. And you're, like, maybe the only talent they have on their roster. So, wow, okay. Yeah. So did you... I, what was Shanghai like? I mean, in terms of, I, I've been to Hong Kong and, and Taiwan, but I haven't been to mainland China. It, uh, you know, it was fat. The, for a while, the, I, I did two stints there. The first stint was eight months, and the second was uh, four months. And the first one, I, I really liked it because all the novelty. But the, the second one, I was kind of over the, the novelty. And it was just a difficult, it was difficult for me to live there because I was, it's very, there's a lot of concrete, not a lot of green, and um, a lot of people. A lot of people. I lived in. <laughs> I moved myself. It's kind of my own fault. I moved into this building that was. I was the only foreigner in the building, mm. and uh, so I felt just this profound loneliness there. And and it's kind of an aggressive, assertive uh, culture. Uh, you know, if you've got the insider friends, they'll be throwing elbows to make sure you get a, a seat on the bus. Yeah. But if you don't then you're the one receiving the elbows. A lot it, of josh, jostling and yeah. pushing. And, you know, the, in, in some ways it reminded me of America the, with the, just the, the aggression. Yeah, they're not big on waiting in line. No. In China, apparently. That's like a rep that they have now as travelers and stuff, now that they're getting around the world. That's, that's one of their big um, marks against them that, yeah. that, that I'm hearing. Oh. And, sort, and sort of like America in the other respect, it's like, you know, if you're in the middle of the U.S., it's like USA number one, no doubt, everything we do is better. Yeah. And uh, same thing in China, you know, big insulated company, China number one, everything we do is better, mm. you know, and kind yeah. of like we walk around other cultures like you're this grand ambassador of, of Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you spent some time living there. Give me the just to get back to Japan a little bit, how did you pick up Japanese? I mean, did you? That's a tough one. Uh, you the alphabet is different. You know, it's just like it's, if there's Roman lettering in the same alphabet, it's easy. I know what ristorante means. Yeah. You know? But you get to Japan, it's like, well, it's a shape, it's a house with a little, looks like a picnic table with a right. roof. That's uh, true. That's it true. could say bank, it could say sauna. I don't know what it means. But they do have a, it's, you know, once you pick up the words, you can butcher them a little bit. Most people know what you mean. Yeah. Baseball rule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Baseball. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Kohi. Yeah. Yeah. You can take a lot of words and bastardize them into like katakana and people will pick it up. <laughs> and, but in China, the, with all the different tonalities, yeah. oh. like it, it, it's so hard. For me, at least, it was very difficult. Even the two streets I lived on, which were Shishen Lu and Liuan Lu, after eight months, I would get into a taxi and say, Shishen Lu, Liuan Lu. The guy would turn around. I was like, uh, Lu, Liu and Lu. And if I didn't get it right on the third time, he'd just say, get out of the taxi. Oh, my no, God. Like, so, I mean, even after eight months, I couldn't correctly pronounce my street names. <laughs> Did you do the thing where you bring a little card with your address? Like Eventually, the, I started Like the doing hotel, that. you yeah. know, it gives you that card. Just hand this to the driver. Yeah. <laughs> and so, Japan, yeah, I picked up enough to, to uh, you know, order food, get around, uh, pick up women. Yeah. You know. Oh, so the model didn't last. The dating the model that you went there for? 
Oh no, I, that, that, I never dated that model in the airplane. Oh, okay. I just went there on their advice. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I yeah. thought you guys were an item. No, no. All right. What yeah. was the biggest? And then we'll get off of Japan. But I mean, what was the biggest mistake you made? Like, if you look like a culture shock, the biggest like, whoops, I did that wrong, and they looked at you like, Ooh. oh wow, that's a good question. <laughs> did you go to the uh, the bath and not lather yourself up properly? I heard that's a problem. <laughs> you're supposed to yeah, wash yeah, off. You got to make a big show time. of like how much soap you're putting on yourself because they think we're dirtier, you know, before you get in the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think having direct confrontations with people was a pro was, you know, yeah. sometimes a problem. You got to be gentle about that. Probably the biggest mistake I made was staying a little too long, just in the sense that it's kind of a golden cage, Yeah, you know, because it's good as a bachelor, but you're never going to become a big star. You know, you're, so you're in a good, comfortable spot, but if you stay too long, then you're starting to run out of options to leave and go anywhere else. Yeah. And uh, it's tempting to stay because, you know, you can make a living within, uh, if you get the right look and uh, you know how to be big, not necessarily a good actor, but a big actor, then within <laughs> a, a big actor? Yeah, yeah, like, a, you know, like over overselling it, right? Yeah, chewing the scenery and just, yeah. <laughs> they like it? They like it? Oh, yeah, the, the bigger you can be, the better. Okay. So, That's interesting. Yeah, so if, if you've got that down within a month or two, you're paying all your bills with yeah. just acting work, which is great. You know, it's a dream come true. You're living in L.A. You know, you're a full-time actor, quote-unquote actor. Um, and Tokyo is not cheap. And it's not cheap, no. I mean, you're not going to really be able to raise family, have a nice house, but living as a bachelor, you can do well. But again, you stay too long, you get stuck. Luckily, I was on a job late one night, and uh, this Japanese director, very unusual for a Japanese guy to do this, he's like, how, how long how long you been here? And I said, oh, I've been here. Yeah, two, three years. And and he's like, he looked at me seriously and he said, you know, you take this more seriously than these other guys and you've got, you've got some talent. You've had your fun here. Why don't, why don't you jump in the deep end of the pool? And I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, you know, L.A. <laughs> With a twinkle in his eye. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, if this is not the call of destiny, right. <laughs> if I don't go now, I'm never going. Well, it's funny. If you had stayed in Chicago, you come to that moment as well, you know, because, you know, that's where I started. <clears throat> and eventually, you know, you can make a living. Mm. It's mostly commercial and industrial work. Yeah. But now they're shooting in all these shows there now, you know, CSI, Chicago, whatever, you know, there's a whole night of. Oh, yeah. A block, you know, Chicago Fire FD or whatever it is now. I mean, they, there was like a whole string of shows. But when I was there in the 90s, they weren't shooting anything there. But you could make a living. Um, not just in stand-up. I mean, there's enough road work you could live. Yeah. Um, but you could, there were guys making decent commercial and industrial work. But eventually you get to that point where it's like, okay, if I'm going to kick this up to yeah. the next level, you, you get that big fish, small pond thing. Totally. And you got to go to like either New York or LA. You know, it's, it, but some guys never leave. And they have a decent life. But, you know. As long as there's no regrets. I mean, yeah, you kind of right. know. I would have regretted it. That's it. It's like, I knew I was going to come. I knew Eventually. I would have regretted it, too. Okay. Well, that totally is. makes sense to me. So but, you come back to came, L.A.? Came back to L.A., and, and you know, as mentioned with the acting, I had a big sort of a 
culture shock thing with the with the acting I, you know because i thought i was hot shit because i was doing so well in japan yeah. you know and you read all these books saying you're starting from the bottom like well not me yeah that's right <laughs> then you come here it's like oh you were hot shit in japan this guy was hot shit in new york this guy was hot shit in dallas yeah. this guy was hot shit in chicago it's like ooh, okay now we're all in acting class not to mention my, my <laughs> acting sucked and, and in la you're over the top you're i'm too so in- over the top <laughs> and in la they you know people sugarcoat things so my first acting coach uh was down here at uh larry moss yep not him himself but a, a lady okay. that worked for him i guess i won't mention her name but she was uh she i would do these scenes and looking back i i was embarrassing myself in front of the room and i remember her feedback specifically one time was like okay jonathan that was good, but you're very charismatic, and you don't want to put cream on top of cream. Right. <laughs> Those were her exact words. And I thought, okay, I'll just dial it down a little bit, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, but I still wasn't booking work. And then I decided to switch acting coaches, and I hired this guy, uh, Doug Warhead, who's from New York. And uh, New Yorkers are much different than yeah. people in L.A. So I'm the new guy in class, and I get, he puts me with the most beautiful woman in the class for the first scene. We're in front of the class. Of course, I want to impress the class. Of course, I want to impress her. Yeah. I'm going all out. Like, yeah. I'm chewing I, this scenery up. <laughs> I was going to chew that scenery up. <laughs> Godzilla, it's where are you? Coming through the window. <laughs> I get halfway through my first line. Cut. Stop. Right. From the back of the room, he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Pregnant pause. Jonathan, if you act like that, you will never get a job in this town. <laughs> I felt myself flush red, you know, inside. But he got my attention. Yeah. And he came to me after the class and said, look, you know, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but you really need to, like, just come at this with a beginner's mind, which I did. Mm-hmm. So there's something to be said for um, somebody who's, who's rude to you. They could just be an asshole. Or maybe they're really giving you some important intel that's just hard to receive. Yeah. And in this case, that's what I was paying them for, right? Yeah, yeah I've taken yeah. a lot of you know, acting classes over the years, and some will tell you what you want to hear just to keep you coming back and just feed your ego, knowing full well that you're not doing what you're... You know, that was good. Uh, you know, yeah. they can't tell you your face. is like, look, it ain't gonna... Yeah. This, <laughs> this is not for you. Right. You know, they'll, they'll happily keep taking your money every month. Totally. So what was the biggest thing you were in in japan that would we have seen anything or was it all commercials did you do i did a, a movie yeah i did a movie called takeshi with uh takeshi jesus i forget his last name but it was big he did fireworks hanabi which is a big japanese art house movie we shot in okinawa that was that was good good gig and uh i was in a godzilla film <laughs> It was this. Uh, <laughs> You're right. I made the Godzilla reference. You did. But you got see, it. But okay, they're still making Godzilla films. Yeah, it was this Japanese director, but who who had studied in Australia, and they brought him back. It was some kind of anniversary of the Godzilla films, and to be honest, it's a horrible movie. And <laughs> and my scene is so small. If you blink, you won't you won't see me. But it showed up in my IMDb, and in my travels, that Godzilla thing has gotten more doors opened. People oh, yeah? are like, oh my God, you were in Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> Come on in. That's great. <laughs> Here's the passport stamp. You know, I've, literally once I was at some passport crossing and I was having a real hard time. And 
somehow it came up that I was in I was in Godzilla and <laughs> uh, yeah I said I was like what do you do it's got being really stern somewhere uh, kind of Soviet or ex Soviet block okay and uh, I was like an actor and he's like, oh yeah an actor yeah, yeah, yeah what have you been in and I was like well I was in Godzilla and he's like Godzilla you know his <laughs> eyes light up stamp <laughs> I had a problem where was I. I was going through another border. I thought, too, on this one, I remember in Israel, where they, you know, grill you, you know, for hours. Um, I was taking a domestic flight just from like Tel Aviv to Elat, which is like a little 45 minute flight or whatever. But there's tons of questions. And I told them, I made the mistake of saying, you know, I was a comedian. And oh, really? And I've done acting and stuff. What have you been in? And then they go in there and they, Run back, and this, you know, was, they were probably 19, 20 years old, you know, doing their obligatory service that they have to do. You know, they're kids, so they're dicking with me right now. They're, they're going, and I hear them looking at my reel, like, I hear my own act, my comedy act in the <laughs> office, so just, and I just, like, my uh, paranoid show business brain, it's just like calling, that's an old reel, you know, I, I'm going to update that. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm paranoid. It's like, I'm going to get new headshots, too. Don't, if you're booking anything, don't. That's, that's not my best uh, work. That's an old, I got to update that. Right, totally. Oh, my God. And then another thing that, because from the show I hosted at TBS, I did tons of celebrity interviews. Yeah. And I still had on my phone pictures of me with these celebrities, like me and Will Smith. Oh, wow. Me and, you know, all these people. And they were that, how do you know all these people? Well, I hosted this show. Oh, they that, loved it. Oh, you know, yeah. Me and Jim Carrey, and then that, I you, never thought that would help me, but it did. Oh, you never want to erase those photos. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so you came back here. When did the, the whole, well, first of all, hosting, and then the travel hosting start? Yeah, so actually, it's an interesting story. The, when I moved to L.A., I was first crashing on a buddy's couch in Orange County. As you do. As you do. And... Um, <laughs> He had an old copy of Backstage West on uh, his coffee table, and I flipped to the back where the, the, the casting calls were, and there was something about a travel show host. Uh, so I applied. I, you know, I had a lot of travel experience at this point, but I didn't have good copy. Uh, all I had was just Japan right. stuff. And they actually got back to me, and we had a small dialogue, and then they stopped talking to me as, as they do. Uh, two, three years go by, uh, totally forgot about it, obviously. And I'm in Las Vegas doing a promo video for the MGM Grand on break in my room. My cell phone rings. And this guy's like, hey, do you remember a while ago you applied for a travel show host thing? I still you know, didn't make the connection. But during the course of the conversation, I figured out like, oh, my God, it was that original, the very first thing <laughs> oh I God. applied for. One of the producers of that original team that produced that show that I didn't get left to start his own production company, had an idea for an off-the-beaten-path travel show, and he pulled the old audition tapes to save himself some time and, and money. Wow. And, and saw my, my tape and, and liked it. So um, during the conversation, I found out that the guy who got the job, the original job, flew out to meet them and went rock climbing with them. So I was like, well, of course you've got the job. I'm a guy on the phone, and here's the guy right. like, rock climbing. So I'm like, I'm not going to lose this opportunity. So I... I asked him where he was based. He was in Sacramento. At the time, I was, I was uh, teaching paragliding, which, which sounds pretty cool. Yeah. And, and I had a, uh, a partner school in San Francisco, 
And so I just confabulated. I was like, oh, Sacramento, that's interesting because next week I'm supposed to do this big paragliding thing, uh, you know, in San Francisco, which, which wasn't true. Um, so let's meet. Let's meet in the middle. <laughs> and I looked for the most interesting place between the two of us, which happened to be the Jelly Belly Bean Factory. Just something that would stand out in the guy's mind, you know, and I could okay. be the host as we're walking around. Hey, how many, by the way, how many beans do you make a day here? And blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we had one meeting. And the next thing you know, we, we, we were in Calcutta shooting uh, the first season of Road Less Travel. So you didn't uh, take him paragliding? I did in India. Uh, okay. Yeah, I brought the paraglider there with the idea we would do that for one of the segments. But every every town we flew in, it ended up being, uh, you know, not the right place or not the right weather. And then we ended up, I think our fifth or sixth episode, we were in Ladakh in the northern part of India. And we were kind of low on content. There wasn't as much to film there as we suspected. So Sashi, the executive producer, was like, hey, maybe this is the time to break out the paraglider. <laughs> So I did some research and I could find no intel of anybody flying in Ladakh and it's kind of in this bowl of mountains. So, you know, there's all kinds of weird channels of air going through. It's, it, you know, it's mysterious and potentially strong conditions. Um, so I kind of do an eyeball scout of the area and there's this one road that's winding up the mountains and the way the road snakes, it creates these sort of like little humps of, of grass. And I'm thinking, okay, we could maybe launch from one of those and fly down into the valley so I have a taxi driver take us up there early in the morning because conditions are more mellow before the sun really bakes the earth. Set the paraglider up amongst all these rocks. It's super inhospitable kind of paragliding <laughs> terrain. I hook the, the producer up with his camera. There's no wind blowing, so it's, it's going to be a difficult launch. And then suddenly up the road comes a, uh, a military truck and uh, this military truck kind of goes right below and in front of us. All these soldiers in it are kind of staring at us like, what the? Because <laughs> we're, we're close to the border with China and they've had all these incidents with China. So it's heavily militarized. And, and I can see, I, I know they're headed for this base. And I'm thinking as soon as they get up there, somebody in command is going to find out there's two guys with some weird flying contraption. <laughs> I was like, we got to get this thing. If we're going to do this, we got to do this. And a little gust of wind puffed in my face. I was like, go! I st we started running, started pulling up the paraglider. It got above our heads, but it wasn't really taking flight yet. It was just kind of loose, and we're running down the steep hill now. There's boulders. This is giant boulder that we're just about, we're going to plaster into this thing. And at the last minute, crack! Paraglider catches, inflates, and whoosh! Fly right <laughs> over this boulder. I mean, you can see in the video, my eyes get wide. I thought we were going to eat it. This is gonna be, and the producer with the cameras in front of me, he's gonna get it the worst. But yeah, we we took flight. We just did a little kind of thing, and then skid in on a, a dirt road down below with stray dogs chasing us. From it was really run and gun. But when you're filming your first season and you're trying to make a mark, you you kind of take those those chances. Where did Road Less Travel air, and how many episodes did you do? The first season was uh, eight episodes, and all India, and we got uh, on History Channel in India. We got on TLC in Latin America. I think Russia HD, and uh, eventually, 
I think a deal in Korea. It was just like a hodgepodge of small deals. Eventually, we got um, Travel Channel in, in Europe. I'm not sure if we got that first or second season. But it was definitely enough to cover the bills and, and pay us and keep the series going. Okay. Which so, was the idea. So did it air in the U.S.? Did it ever air in the U.S.? It did. It, it aired eventually on outside TV, okay. associated with the magazine. And then later, Awe TV, which uh, still might be on Awe, but Awe's... A-W-E? E-W-E, exactly. Yeah. I just did a... That's the show I was shooting, the most amazing homes for them. Oh, yeah. Are, yeah. They, are they still... I know I they're, they're in some legal trouble now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, we just... Uh, this is an exclusive for people listening. If you found it, and most people didn't even find the channel... I'm trying to explain to people where it is and how to get oh. it. My my mom couldn't find it. Nobody, I don't have cable anymore. Nobody can find it. Yeah, I don't know where it is. But um, yeah, I, I I just talked to a producer and they're like, we don't know what's happening with it. You know, we right. shot one season and nobody even there. All I know is the producers are dealing with the network. That's right. all I heard. And so I I'm assuming it's never coming back. Or if I'm going to be involved, I, I have no idea. So. Right, but yeah, I do know AWE. It used to be called Wealth TV. That's it. That's yeah. amazing. We've both been on AWE. What are the odds? And pays fantastic. You're right. Absolutely. Oh man, I'm living high <laughs> off the hog on that one. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So, have you ever been like traveling somewhere and seen the show like by accident, like on an airplane or uh, in a hotel? I have. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And some <laughs> friends of my, one of my friends, a uh, uh, Argentinian guy that I met through paragliding, he said he went back to Argentina and went to find his dad. You know, he just walks in the door. He's back from the States and finds his dad in the living room watching, watching my show. And he's like, dad, I know that guy. Like, not only do I know him, but we're actually friends. And so, you know, I was happy that he was able to say that to his dad and his dad enjoyed the show. It's, it's kind of a, a really nice moment. Yeah. Every so often I'll get a random posting on Facebook. Somebody tagged me and look, I'm seeing you on TV right now. And it's like, they're in a hotel room somewhere, and it's aired. Yeah, it's cool, right? It, it's yeah, nice it is kind of weird. I think I saw one thing I did on an airplane, and I can't remember what it was. Um, but I remember turning it on, and like it's on my little screen in front of me. And I had that weird moment of like, I wonder if somebody's going to recognize me. Like, <laughs> I wonder if I can replay this and just play it nonstop on a loop and hope somebody, is, yeah. is that you? Nope, nobody cared. Nobody how, noticed. How do you feel when you watch your old stuff? Are you? Are you? Do you nitpick it, or are you? Yeah, of course, satisfied? but that, I mean, some stuff. It's. I mean, I don't go back and watch a lot of this stuff. Like the HGTV stuff will still air somewhere. Uh, there was something I shot for the, a home show for the Fine Living Channel, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I saw it like on a TV somewhere in Europe. I don't want to say in Germany in a hotel room or something. That it's all. It was all about home prices in America. You know, comparing home prices around the country, and it's like, why would they care? <laughs> and it's old and dated. And it's right. like the prices don't. It was pre like uh, two thousand nine crash. Oh, you know, yeah, and just yeah. like it doesn't even match anymore. They didn't care. It's just like I think they just need content, right? And just something to show, right? Some so kind of background. I got a kick out of it. Yeah, but it's, it, yeah, it's, it's weird looking at this stuff. So was that the only one you shot, or, or is it still going on? Or It's still going. I mean, wow. we're, we're kind of in limbo now because of all the recent acquisitions. You know, So every time you, the channel you were on gets acquired, it's right. like, wow, we got to look at all the old stuff, make a decision. The Discovery's buying up everybody and yeah. scripts and 
Yeah. Yeah. Travel Channel has now become Ghost Hunters. I don't yes. know what. <laughs> exactly. There's no travel on it. It's right? The weirdest, it's weirdest. so it's, bizarre. Yeah. Especially when and, you see how much interest there is on social media for travel content. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. So, so yeah, but we did, we've done so far, I think 55 episodes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's been quite a boon. With I mean, some of the most remote places you went. We went to Antarctica on a um, oil tanker that, oh my God. that goes once a year to refuel McMurdo base. Oh my God. I went on a cruise ship. So that's kind of like a different Oh, we both vibe. went to Antarctica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that was that was you know I was mainly focused on pre you know preparing for the trip. I was focused on the Antarctica content, but I spent twenty something like twenty days going down and ten coming back with the crew. So that was a bonus. So anyway, we, it was twenty five people on the boat, and so in twenty days, wow. you know, you can only shoot so much, and you're really getting to know these guys. We're running every possible kind of drill, getting deep conversations, and really interesting peek into a, a unique in unique way of living did you get the uh ship out of ushuaia in argentina or did you, that's where i caught the no we boat. went from uh perth oh you did yeah oh, you went all the on the other side yeah an interesting interesting insider story um that <laughs> i don't know if i should tell us but uh the, the i had a buddy who's spent a little bit of time in uh perth and he was he was at the time he's no longer at the time he was a bit of a stoner <laughs> and uh i thought well i'm gonna be on this ship for all this time alcohol's prohibited you know what maybe, maybe i could get a little bit of a maybe i could get a little bit of weed <laughs> so my buddy hooked me up with a content contact and this guy the night before came by my room and just gave me an eighth of marijuana <laughs> uh which i snuck onto the ship and it, because it's an oil tanker, there's just one little cl- broom closet room for smoking in the bowels for smoking. Right. Where you, you you can sit in and you basically stick your cigarette through a little hole in the wall and it lights it on. I think some kind of a metal coil. And um, yeah, so I would go down there with the with the cameraman and and we would take apples out of the galley and you know carve them out <laughs> and burn burn a bunch of cigarettes to mask the smell and. <laughs> And get what? high and go out on the deck and watch the waves breaking. It was magic. Why an oil tanker? And why, what was the theme? I mean, was this what Road Less Travels is about? Is like the kind of travel that no one would do? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's the idea. So, And what did the oil company have to gain with having you on there? Well, we'd previously, it was Maersk. Uh, oh, yeah. And we'd previously filmed with them on a cargo ship going from... Uh, Rotterdam down to down somewhere in Morocco and they they liked the coverage we gave them you know a lot of the specs of the ship and and what the industry is all about and so we asked them if they had any other routes and they mentioned this one we thought hell yeah this is great um wow and it you know it's an interesting thing this is a I learned so much about the whole the whole Antarctic deal you know it's like we're going down there once a year to to refuel uh McMurdo base and uh, there was an interesting speech on the on the ship. I have a feeling Marisk is not going to like any of this. But well, this, okay, this the, is a naval base. Like they're well, refueling? it's it's a it's a uh, so it's a civilian ship, but it's kind of under military authorization, right? It's okay. got because it's it's critical kind of infrastructure needs for the U.S. to maintain this base. So it's a U.S. base. It's a U.S. base. Okay, because yeah. we visited a Chilean base on the cruise ship, but. 
you know, it wasn't much of a base. It was two guys in an, in an office. Okay. So and a couple boats. Yeah. Little bo- it was like a Coast Guard thing. You know what I mean? This yeah. was like a serious military. Well, base. I think they're playing, the, they're all playing the same game, you know, and, and the, uh, the NSA, the National Science Association, they, they, were, they, were, uh, they were very suspicious of us when we came down there to film. Uh, and it, it correlates to a speech that I heard some general got on the ship or admiral right before we got off and, and uh, you know, he told the crew in this speech, like, you know, what you guys are really doing is you're maintaining a U.S. presence in Antarctica. So uh, they want to give the impression that they're, you know, they're conducting science and it's all neutral and this is all, you know, scientific discovery. But the real game everybody's playing is putting a stake in the ground. Yeah. So when it, when it does come time, which will inevitably happen where it gets divided up, it's like, well, you know, we've been sitting here on this patch of ground for a long time. You know, the U.S. put a base right in the middle. Uh, Argentina's flown in people to, to bear their children on the continent just for the sakes of legal land claim, right? You know, we, we actually have yeah. Antarcticans here, so. It's called an empire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's uh, the that's the game, yeah. and they didn't want us to talk about that at all, or or show anything other than people doing science. But there's you know there's <laughs> bars there, there's people just hanging out. It's mainly just people holding the ground. Right, right. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. That's unbelievable. I know you got to go. We'll do a speed round of fun stuff. All right. As a passenger, the worst flight you ever had, the worst travel experience in terms of oh, I had flying. this flight, this Air Maroc flight that uh that hits severe turbulence. The worst I've experienced in my life as either a passenger or flight attendant. I mean, monster drops. And uh, everybody in the cab, and there's just a lot of people I don't think flew a lot, and, and they're all screaming, and they're, they're praying to Allah. And I'm, oh I'm in the middle seat, so I can't really see, is the, is the engine on fire? Or like, how bad is it really? You know, so I'm white-knuckling it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my just God. the overall feeling of just being out of control. Yeah. You know, terror. Oof, my God. Give me your uh, worst uh, bathroom story. In ter- any food poisonings, any kind of like uh, worst, like I need a toilet now or I am going to... Uh, yeah, well, I, I was I was hiking. I hiked across a little section of the Darien Gap from Colombia into Panama back in the day, and uh, that last village in Colombia, uh, there was it was on a little bay. I stayed in this like rustic. It was all rustic spots, uh, you know, with the mosquito nets around the bed. And the <laughs> the lady, um, I got dinner from the lady, and she served me. I was like, hey, just give me whatever your favorite dish is. And she brings out this dish. It's shrimp in a mix of like ketchup and mayonnaise, but there was no refrigeration in that town. Uh, so my, my gut feeling is like, uh, you know, is this mayonnaise okay? Like it's not really, I wouldn't, you know. But she's standing over me kind of beaming like, you know, this is my special dish you asked yeah. for. And I feel this social pressure. So I ate it. And then that night I woke up you know, like knowing, oh my God, I explode. <laughs> and I could hear the mosquitoes outside the net just, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just like fits of me running to the bathroom. At one point I was, fell asleep for a short amount of time with my finger up against the net and a rat came and like nibbled on my finger. Oh. And, 
<laughs> this is one of those longest nights. Oh my and, God. and I actually have a travel tip out of that. Like if you ever find yourself as a traveler in that kind of situation where somebody serves you something and part of your mind is like, I probably shouldn't eat this. Just say, oh, oh my God, I just realized I have to go to this place right now. I forgot I made an appointment. Can I get this to go real quick? So this, this way, and then just throw it away once you're out right. of eyesight. <laughs> just take it to go and throw it away later. <laughs> That's the way to do it. <laughs> what was the craziest thing you ate in Asia when you were living there, like between China or Japan? You have a pretty good stomach? I mean, you can handle I've got a good busy. stomach. I mean, we ate filming. I ate tarantula in Cambodia. Actually, quite good. And we did, um, we did a uh, cobra heart in Vietnam and they actually cut the, you know, they chopped the cobra's head off and then immediately slice, I mean, within seconds, they slice his chest open, pull the heart out and it's still beating when you put it in your mouth. And, oh. and just so, just so people don't think, uh, this, this is, um, we're eradicating a sensitive species. We, we followed up on this story and we discovered there's two towns, uh, North of Hanoi where they breed cobras. That's all the entire industry of these villages to breed cobras. For this meat? For this meat. Oh. And we, we went from door to door asking to film, and everybody was very cautious about it. Eventually, we paid these guys $100 to let us in. This guy leads me into this room, kind of a big room with a bare concrete floor, but every sort of square uh, half a meter, there's a, there's a little wooden trap door in the ground. And we, we walk in there and he takes a metal stick and foop, 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 he flips over and open a, a bunch of the trap doors and cobras just come spilling out and slithering around the room. Like live, these aren't rattlesnakes, cobras. Now you're Indiana Jones. Yeah. And yeah. he's picking them up with this metal thing and he's trying to like hand it to me. He's like, here, take it, take it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Are these defanged? No, they're not defanged. They're not, they haven't been, this is live with the full venom. I'm like, wow, they're so careless. And at the very end, we, we get kind of all our shots. I'm lucky I haven't been bitten. <laughs> uh, and I ask him, I was like, oh, you know, uh, there's one more shot I'd like to get. I hear every one of you guys stocks a little bit of anti-venom in case one of you gets bit. Can, can you show me? And they get together in a little huddle. And, they're, and then they come back and they're like, okay, we'll show you for $150. <laughs> I was like, what? I paid 100 to get in for everything else. Now, now I have a worm in my head. Like, did they want me to get bit? Yeah. So now it's like, okay, how much are you going to pay to get that anti-venom that we have? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. So what did the, what did the heart taste like? Oh, boy, I, I chomped it down so fast. Oh, God. I didn't, I didn't roll it around the palate. So, oh. you know. Is there something you, that you came to and you're like, I'm just not doing that? Like, I'm not... Whether it's eating that or some kind of activity, you're going like, nah, I, that's not for me. Hmm. Like, you, even I draw the line. Like, I'm adventurous, but that is like, no. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I met with a parkour guy in France, and we just met, shook hands, and then immediately he jumped off the side of the road. We were kind of on a little bridge uh, that that just went over a, a, a tunnel that with a road underneath it. And he jumped off the bridge pretty much 20 feet down to pavement and rolled it out. And he's like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got any training at this point or anything. And I was like, no, no, I'm going to walk around. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> right. 
But yeah, generally, you know, I'm I'm very cautious about doing anything that's um, that seems like exploitation. Um, I always want to call it as it is. You know, even if a, a segment is a bust, like let the cameras roll and just say like, look, it's a bust. I thought it was going to be this, but it's not. Um, I don't want to. We, yeah, we every now and then we'll throw in a little dramat dramatized piece for for fun in the show. But I, I'd never want the audience to think I'm snowing them. I, I always want to communicate. Yeah, sure. Occasionally, I get a few doors opened up with the show, but but eighty percent of the content, I'm just rocking up and we're just doing it. Because um, often with this kind of a show, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Like you want it raw. You don't want to get it. You know, you don't give them time to prepare and rehearse. You want to just get boom, just jump right into the scene and see what you get. And so. What I'm doing, the audience, most of it, the audience could do. It just takes a little bit of gumption. Just do it. Aside from the the Venom guys, was was there a time you had to buy your way out of a situation? Like, I had a couple jams with authorities, like, um, in yeah, cops or whatever. Yeah, in, in Transnistria, which is this breakaway republic of Moldova. Wow, uh, never even heard of it. Yeah, it's. I think the the Russians run their arms and maybe drugs through that. So so even they don't recognize it. Although they they fought to help them get their independence. Yeah, there's a huge statue of Lenin in the main square. Secret police everywhere. Uh, we go in with this guide from uh, Romania, and he's like, "Look, you know, we do everything on the down low." So the the cameraman's literally shooting from the hip, and I'm just mumbling the lines, kind of, you know. And he, the, the, our guide is looking around to see if we're being watched. <laughs> we don't we don't want to give any sign that we're doing any formal filming. And then as we're as we're leaving, we go to the train station and the train's not leaving as soon as our guide expected. So he's like, You guys just sit right here. I'm gonna go to the bus station across the street. Don't talk to anybody. He goes to the bus station. As soon as he leaves, some guy comes up to me, you know, authority figure, and says something to me in Russian. And I was like, uh, well, uh and he's like, Go on with me. Oh, and he no. leads leads us to this window. And there's the, you know, the cop behind the window. You know, my cameraman is standing beside me with a bag full of cameras and mics and stuff like that. And he's asking me what what we're doing and da 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 da. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a paragliding instructor and this is my friend. I just always want to travel here. And he's like, oh, you're you're not a journalist, are you? <laughs> and I'm like, no. And, you know, if they would have opened up that bag, we would have truly been fucked because there's no embassy in Transnistria. Nobody to negotiate for you. And, but right after he says that, I say no. And I notice behind him, there's a calendar behind him that has this castle from Transnistria that I happened to research. We never ended up going there. And I was like, oh, my God, is that uh, such and such castle behind you? And he turns around. And he's like, why, yes. And I see his chest swell up a little bit. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I, I've heard it has the most unique ramparts of any castle in the world. And I'm just, and he, oh, oh you know, yes. <laughs> And now we're buddies, right? And we, I get him off of the interrogation line, and now we're talking about castles and Transnistria's <laughs> history. And, and, you know, we have a chummy talk for five minutes. He's like, yeah, you can go now. And that was a clear bullet dodge. <laughs> wow. And then in, uh, in South Ossetia, which is an area that Russia took from Georgia, uh, we went in there. Apparently, there was a sign on the road that said, you need special permission to go in there. I couldn't read it. Our Russian guide apparently didn't. Maybe he was taking a nap when we passed it. <laughs> and we end up, we go to this village. We find these cabins to stay in. I uh, go to, I was like, I'll be right back and get some snacks. I go to a, like a little shop. 
remember walking in the shop. There's a guy leaving. There's a woman uh, looking for something. And as soon as I open my mouth and I start talking to the shopkeeper, everybody freezes. The guy who was walking out the door stops and then begins to pretend like he's looking at something around the doorway. And the other lady freezes. And, you know, it's like high attention on what's going on. And I'm, you know, I'm asking for salami and cheese or whatever. <laughs> as soon as I bring the goods back to the cabins, there's the cops. Uh, and they take us to the police station, and it's tense. Uh, I mean, they've got us sort of surrounded in this room, these, these like six cops standing firm, their arms akimbo. And I, I thought, okay, if they start beating us, I looked at the desk. There was a desk. I was like, I'm going to try to get under the desk so they can't get as much leverage. <laughs> It was that was that tense. Wow. And um suddenly another cop walks in the door and the this other cop looks at me and he's like, Hey, I know you. I was like, You know me? He's like, Yes, my brother follows your Instagram account. And I've got like at this point six thousand Instagram followers. <laughs> what are the odds? And he's like, Yeah, you do the TV show, right? I was like, Yes. Please tell these guys, because I think it was one of these situations like Argo, where they thought, yeah, yeah. of course, you film a TV show, right? Right. You're right. really a spy. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, and as soon as he tells them, everybody relaxes. They bring us water, chocolate, cigarettes. <laughs> and we have to wait five hours for uh, this FSB, KGB guy to show up, and we get a small fine. Um, but uh, yeah, it was... Uh, it God, was, that's scary. Right? It was When you lose control, it, it happens sometimes in life but when you're in a foreign country and suddenly you're in the hands of other people yeah your freedom is snatched from you it is a terrifying feeling it is i i tried to the only time i can really compare it is when i had a long extra long layover in lagos nigeria mm. coming back from kilimanjaro or That's something rough it was like a nine hour layover i was using miles and your old boss united booked this <laughs> that they had me laying over for nine hours in Lagos. And that for them, that was too long. You need a visa if you're going to be here. I said, I'm not leaving the airport. The, you know, no. And they put me in a room and they take my passport. And once that passport's out of your hands oh, and you yeah. see it walk down the hallway. <laughs> and I'm like, who is that person? Where, is the, where are they going? Right. Because now you're without this document and you, don't, you feel like you're nobody. You're like, a, who yeah. am I now without this? What are you going to show them? My California driver's license? <laughs> yeah. My, you know, my uh, Ralph's Club card? You know, yeah. it's like, I'm nobody now. It just Yeah, now your option is like, yeah. the worst comes to worst. You got to like physically escape and yeah. cr- cross some border by foot. Where am I going to go? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, you know, Jason Bourne. I don't have like multiple passports. And, <laughs> yeah, it's a really helpless feeling. It is. And uh, yeah, so that I can totally identify. Well, I know you got to go, and this is a this has been great because you got a ton of stories. Yeah, let's um, do it again. Yeah, okay. Let me know. Um, let people know where you, they can find you, and just getting your plugs and your Instagram and everything else. Yes, yeah, uh, JonathanLegg.com, dot L E G G, like the leg on attached to your torso, mm-hmm. but with two G's. JonathanLegg.com. dot com. Uh, the book is called Seven Ahas Every Traveler Should Have. It's on Amazon now, pre-order. Uh, by the time this comes out, there might be the the um, paperback might be out as well. Okay, great. I'll have links to all this Fantastic. on our site too, as well. And uh, how about the Instagram followers? Are you up to now? I'm bad at social media. So. Oh, I'm bad too. You know, on one hand, you realize it's kind of important to promote your brand. On the other hand, it's I think social media and on the on the medium is is 
not so good for society. So the more you can limit it, the better. Just get, if you got to use it, make it a surgical strike. Yeah. Get in and get out. <laughs> uh, I think it's, um, I'm not even sure what it is. Is Instagram mostly your thing or have you gone on other, are you a TikTok person? Or like- I did TikTok for a minute and I found it even more insidious, insidious than the others. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I did this little, a short, I was trying to grease some of my shooting skills and editing skills. So I did a little series where I rode down the, the wall separating the U.S. from Mexico and shot a series of small videos and put them on TikTok. And I think I made YouTube versions mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and that was my only like playing around with, with TikTok after that I got off. But if anybody's on TikTok and wants to see them, <laughs> maybe Jonathan Legg, look for the wall. Well, were you shooting this stuff as a... Uh like it's to pitch a new show or something? I was always just curious about the area. It was kind of during the pandemic. I bought a motorcycle and I thought it was a big news topic too. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, let's, let's see what, what's really going on down here. So I was experimenting with shooting, editing, experimenting with TikTok, um, short form media. What'd you learn about our border that you were, uh, after well, that? I mean, it's very remote. It's there. You can ride dirt roads down pretty much the whole length of it. Um, but you're, if you break down, you better have some backup fuel and water, a lot of water because it's very remote. Um, the border patrol is always watching. Even you can't scratch your nuts without the border patrol knowing, even when you think you're way out of, they, they find you. Um, but when they do find you, they're not exactly like cops no offense to cops, but you know, I'm generally I'm trying to avoid conversations with cops. Uh, but these guys, as soon as they realize you're not smuggling yeah. people or drugs, you're not really who they're looking for. Yeah. Then they're just like, <laughs> you're oh, already a citizen. I mean, you're not. Really. Yeah. Then they're just like, oh, cool. What are you doing? Riding a motorcycle? I have a motorcycle too. Yeah. And perhaps they were still profiling me, but they seemed quite convivial. I mean, they're out there sitting in trucks, just gazing at a wall all day long. So I think they're they're happy for the dis- distraction. Was it California the whole way, or did you go into Arizona and I got Texas? all the way into Arizona. That's where I, the okay. last place I got. And that's where I actually saw family crossing. It's on TikTok. Uh, I was in, so I was just at the border with Arizona. The wall was kind of double layered at that point. And there was a portal in the first layer of the wall. So you could drive into this kind of zone between the two walls. And I thought, ah, interesting. So I rode my motorcycle in there. I immediately saw a border patrol car to the side because I turned around. The guy chases me down. And uh, it turns out he, he was friendly. He's just like, oh, you can go in there. He's like, you just can't go in the other side or else then you'd have to go through all the formal procedures to come back. So, And then we just start having a, a convivial conversation. And as he's talking to me, I see a, a family kind of wade into the river and come around the wall. And so I'm like, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt you, man, but uh, somebody's crossing right behind you. And he turns around, he's like, oh. And he, <laughs> he runs over there, and I, I quickly run up with my camera, get some, you know, jostly shots. And I'm like, hey, I, I, I can speak Spanish. I'll translate for you. I'm trying to get in the action. And he's like, they're Brazilian, he yells oh, wow. back. And so it turns out, you know, I learned a lot that, that uh, Brazil, some countries have extradition policies including honduras where they can just send them right back imagine that like you just completed this um, unbelievable journey from honduras you made it across the wall you get caught and he's right back to square one wow um but brazil didn't have an extradition a thing which means they got to go into this huge court process and you know they might be in the states for years they're going through this thing through mm-hmm. the legal system 
Um, so, you know, I guess they're all doing it legally. What did all this teach you about, I don't know, there's all this talk, you know, that's a big topic now, the wall and everything else. Yeah. What did you learn from the border patrol and what did you learn from seeing these immigrants or wannabe well, immigrants? Or I mean, look, I, under- I understand the idea that every country's got to secure its borders, that, you know, you wouldn't have a country without secure borders. On the other hand, uh, if you look at demographic data, really, there's a demographic time bomb about to go off in the first world where populations are actually going to decrease. And we're going to need people to do jobs, especially menial jobs. And the jobs these people are doing, like going into slaughterhouses and meat packing, nobody wants those jobs. Yeah, picking all the vegetables in yeah. the hot sun. And, we yeah. need somebody to do it, right? And, and you're, I met a lot of these guys. You know, you're, you're coming all the way from, say, Honduras by foot. Uh, every step of the way, you, you know, you're, you got thieves, you, you've got corrupt officials. It is the most dangerous gauntlet to run. And all, almost all of them have a family back home that they're, they're, their dream is to build to eventually support the family and bring them back. And they're coming from desperate situations. Like, you know, Honduras had this series of floods. They were already chicken scratch poor, and then everything got flooded. Their little kiosks washed away. That kind of desperation and that kind of drive, I mean, if you've done that journey, you really, you really love America. You love America more than most Americans, right? <laughs> you believe in the American dream, and you'll, you'll do any job. And frankly, we need people to do those jobs, and these are the kind of people we want in America. There, there's other countries that, you know, we're probably fortunately we don't share a border with just because the, the cultural uh, clash would be too much. But yeah. people generally... You know, coming from Mexico and Latin America, you know, they it, there's a there's there's a flow between us. They kind of they get our culture. We yeah, can get it's theirs. not uh, it's not it's a different scene of what they're dealing with in Europe. Yeah, which when 100%. they're coming from the Middle East, you know, Syrian, you know, totally. Nobody's trying to enact Sharia law, right? Right. <laughs> coming up from Honduras, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an odd thing. I mean, we could talk about that for hours, but no, I just wanted to know your it's a fascinating thing. It's yeah. probably a whole other... That's could probably show in itself. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, but I have a lot of compassion for those people. Again, I understand the need of secure borders, but also... What does the Border Patrol guys think of the, all the build-a-wall stuff? And They have compassion for the people as well, for sure. You know, they're doing a job, mm-hmm. but they have compassion. Uh, so the and they do, and they do... It's a tough job, you know, and, oh, they, yeah. and they feel like they, they, they're kind of vilified a bit by the public you know so i got a lot of respect for those guys as well is there a physical wall that goes all the way across or are there like there's gaps that's what i was gonna say I mean, there's there's gaps pretty remote and, i mean the, yeah and you can get i mean even where there's not a gap you could get around it i mean the the, the true wall is the desert yeah right you don't really need the physical wall because like just getting across that desert is a feat. I could, you know, I don't think I could make it unless I had a whole lot of water and people stashing water for me. Yeah. I mean, these people are arriving depleted, you know, with almost no money, no resources, no nice Gregory backpack, you know, and they're, and they're, they're doing this monster jaunt across open sun baked desert with hardly any water, you know, it's, that's a natural barrier in, in itself. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, it's amazing. All right, I know you got to go. This thank was you. wonderful. Yeah, no, thank thanks you. for doing it, man. If I know we were trying to do it. You were, you were gone a lot, and then I was gone. And then yeah. It just, so it finally worked out. But um, what do you think all this travel in your life and, and all these different cultures and what you've experienced, what has it taught you about people? What have you learned? And how has it changed you as a person? Oh, that's a great question. I think what I saw, I mean, I've, I've filmed with cyberpunk goths in, you know, London, the, you know, remote tribal villagers in, in uh, Southeast Asia and, and uh, all kinds of, all kinds of niches. And what you discover is, yeah, there's, there's all these in colorful differences on the surface, like plumes, plumes of a, of, of a peacock, but at the core you know, we all want to be loved. We all want to have purpose. Uh, we all, you know, want to have a, a modicum of happiness in our life and, and equanimity. So at the, at the, we're all, we all fear the same things. So we're the same creature, ultimately, at the core. And when you really travel and you really dig in, you get out of the resorts, you get on the streets, you get in the mess, uh, the, you discover this, you know, and, and it's both speaking of the mess, it's both messy and it's almost divine at the same time. You know, there's a, there's a series of paradox in life, right? It's messy and it's divine. It's, it means nothing, right? We're here and gone. Everybody will forget. But at the same time, it means everything. And you, you learn to hold these paradoxes and really treasure this unique moment in time. That's great. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks this so much, great. man. All right. Well, we'll look for you, and we'll have links to all your stuff at uh, TravelTalesPodcast.com, and uh, hopefully we'll, uh, we'll do this again. Let's do it again. That's awesome. Jonathan Legg, everybody. Jonathan Legg.